Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Well, hi, good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. It is our delight that you are with us. Um, We like to begin all of our services here at Crossroads with just a moment to stop and to to think about um, that we want to really meet with God this morning, and we want to be able to hear from him and hear him speak, and that we, we know and we acknowledge that we live in a very critical culture, and it, it's just really hard to turn that filter off sometimes. And so we begin all of our services with just a moment of prayer that asks the Lord to help us to be worshipers, to be contributors to the conversation of faith this morning, and not critics. And so uh, let's just take a moment And let's pray. I'm going to ask you to pray silently for a minute, and then I'll pray with us. I thank you so much for this opportunity to get to be together as your people, as your children. Lord, may we never, ever take for granted the privilege of being able to be here, to be encouraged by one another. Lord, you so desired for us to live in unity. And so right now, Jesus, we just ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you will enable us to do just that, to be together um, under your headship. Thank you for this time. Amen. I don't know, it was a number of years ago, I really began to hear a lot of writers and speakers start talking about the kingdom of God and that how Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than anything anything else. And I think what the, these guys were trying to say is that we talk about the kingdom of God very little in comparison to how much Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. And so I began to think about it in my own life personally, like I didn't know what that meant or what that looked like. And so I asked God, like, what does it mean for me, Delenn Miracle, to live into the kingdom, like the here and now? Um, I was kind of opposed to it, actually, the very first time that I, I started hearing it. And I just thought, well, that's in heaven someday away. And I really did become convinced that, no, I, I think when Jesus prayed um, <clears throat> that God's will be done on heaven as it is in, I mean, in, on earth as it is in heaven, that he really meant for heaven to us to live out that reality now. And so I began to, to ask the Lord, what does it mean for me? You know, some people would say, you know, what does Jesus, uh, what would Jesus do or whatever? But I wanted, I wanted to hear from the Lord, like, what is it, how, how can I filter what I think, what I do, what I say, um, to know whether or not this is like living into your kingdom, And it was through a a book of fiction that I had read that the Lord answered my question. Um, The question that he gave me was, is the thing that I'm doing now, like in in my thoughts, in my actions, and what am am I saying, is it something that I can imagine myself doing in heaven someday? 
And I, I, as I started judging all of the things um, in my day by that filter, <laughs> I, I, I began to be a little discouraged, like a, a lot discouraged. Um, like I was thinking about things like, for example, you know, when I don't want to tell the whole truth, can I imagine myself in heaven kind of skirting around a conversation or just lying? Um, when, when I'm uncomfortable, I'm, I'm highly introverted. <laughs> and when I'm uncomfortable, the thing that I want to do is withdraw. Can I see myself in heaven not being fully present to people? Um, in heaven, will, will I lose my patience with people? I, I realize that heaven is going to be a really a very different experience than what I'm living now. But if I'm really buying into this idea that the kingdom of God is meant to be here and now, then how can I live um, that way? And so discipleship began to take on a little bit of a different meaning for me. Um, the question that I began to ask myself is, am I becoming the kind of person who would love your kingdom, who would love your ways to be done. And so how can I grow into becoming the kind of person uh, who would love him? I guess the, the converse, the opposite of that question is, or am I hell-bent on having it my own way? Um, and so as I was journeying through this um, you know, trying to look at my day and all of my thoughts and my actions and my motivations, and I was judging them by this. Um, I, I had some real self-discovery. <laughs> it was not very fun. Um, but the thing that I discovered is that I was really actually quite angry. Like, I, I knew that I was angry, but I, I just really didn't realize the totality of how much anger I was living under, like how often that was ruling my thoughts. And if I'm totally honest with you, <laughs> the thing that I really discovered is I enjoy being angry. You know, that kind of, when you get all whipped up and worked up, you kind of feel alive or something. But the reality is I was I was coming well aware of the fact that this was not living into the kingdom. This was not living in the freedom that God has for me, and this was not God's way. And, and I really wanted to do it differently. But the thing that I was becoming aware of is that I'd been doing this my whole life. Like, this was super ingrained in me. I was just kind of really waking up to what a problem it was, but it was really deeply rooted in me and had been in me for a long time. And I could pray and ask God uh, to help me. But you know, right in the middle of being mad, it's kind of hard to pray, God help me not to be mad. Because at that point, you just, you're just mad. Um, and so I was, I was really, really um, discouraged about it. And I kind of felt like Paul, maybe a little bit when he said, I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Um, I'm just wondering if there's anybody in here today who can identify with me. Please tell me I'm not the only person in this room 
who is enslaved to just toxic thoughts and bad behaviors. <laughs> yeah. um, and you know, maybe it's things that just run deep in your family. Um, I used to, back in the day, be a school teacher in Denton. I taught Algebra two for forever. Um, not well, for forever, about 11 years. But um, we, <laughs> it does feel like forever. <laughs> when you're working with teenagers, it does. <laughs> um, we, they used to make us do this teacher in service training, and you know we all hated it. But there was one that really stood out to me. There was one, this presenter was talking about some research that had been done on generational poverty. And the thing that they were saying was that if a family fell into poverty for whatever reason, whether you know it be loss of a job or illness or imprisonment, whatever, if a family uh, fell into poverty and if the next generation didn't recover and didn't get out of poverty, that by the third generation, those people would have no idea. They would have no concept that getting out of poverty was something that they should even be trying to do. They, they, it would become part of who they are. It was just part of their identity. Um, I think generational sin works the same way. I think it just becomes ingrained in, in us. It just becomes, well, this is, this is who I am. You know, I have friends who talk about alcoholism like it's their family identity. It's just who, who they are. Um, a couple, um, I don't know, it was like a month or so ago, I heard a podcast, and, and the uh, interviewer of the podcast said, um, he said this line that really stuck out to me. He said, we can't live what we can't think. And I thought, hmm. You know, I think that kind of summarizes this whole journey that I've been on. Like, I live as an angry person because I have angry thoughts. If my family of origin trained me to believe that poverty is who I am, then I'm never gonna live in financial freedom. And if I can't see myself being in heaven and loving and enjoying it, then I'm probably not gonna live into the ways of Jesus right here and right now. Today, uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna look at a people who couldn't live what they couldn't think. Um, we're going we're gonna to look at the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. And before we jump into the text, it's going to be really important for us to understand who they were at that moment in time. Um, you know, they have been in Egypt for a very long time, for, you know, 430-ish years, right? And they've been enslaved for way more than three generations, and it is deeply rooted into their identity that they're slaves. And you can see this by the way that they constantly grumble against the Lord, and then they ask Moses to take them back to Egypt, right? Like this, this thing of slavery is totally ingrained into them. And um, it's, it's like they don't know anything else I bet they can't even remember what freedom is like. So they, they can't think like a free person because it's ingrained in them. If you take a, a step back though, a bigger step back in the storyline, like a real big step back, and we go all the way back to Genesis 1, uh, we see what God's original design and what's a God's original plan was. And um, in Genesis 1, um, 
verse 28, we see um, that God is talking to Adam and Eve, and it says, and God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I want you to pay attention to that. That was three categories of things that they were to have dominion over. They were to rule over. Three things. Um, They were to have dominion, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So God... In the, in the setting of this story that we're about to look at, you have to realize that God had like a rebellion on his hands. Like these are, God set these people up, his chosen people to be rulers. That was his good design. That was his intention, that they would be rulers. <laughs> and they are at the opposite end, the far opposite spectrum of that. They have been oppressed for so long that they want oppression. They want to be oppressed. They are absolutely nowhere near wanting to be the rulers that God designed them to be. God has this plan of redemption. He's wanting to take them to this new land, this new home. He wants them to conquer the land. Um, But they're slaves in their heart and their mind. They cannot even begin to fathom the idea of being conquerors. and so let's, uh, with all of that in mind, then let's look at our text. We're going to begin today in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, we're going to look at verse 1 and 2. Um, it says, And God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God begins by introducing himself. He introduces himself as the God... Um, who, first of all, is your God. Um, he's identifying with them. He's saying, I belong to you and you belong to me. And he's saying, I'm the God who rescued you. I am the one who's trustworthy. He's proven himself, he's proven himself to be trustworthy. He's shown up in miraculous fashion. He's saved them out of, out of Egypt, out of slavery with plagues and parting a Red Sea. He's done it in dramatic fashion. And they, they can't deny what he's done for them. It's so obvious. Um, and it's none of the other gods of Egypt saved them from slavery or went out into the desert with them. These other gods haven't done it. Only he has done it. He is the one who is trustworthy. All right, so let's look at verse 3 now. Verse 3 says, the, this is the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. So he's, he's not saying... Um, that, you know, they should keep all of their, their gods from Egypt in their back pocket, and they just, just prioritize him. He's not saying priority, right? He's saying, I'll, I want to be the only God in your life. I want to be, um, I want you to get rid of all of the gods um, that are in your lives from, from Egypt. I alone want to be. It's gonna, he wants it to be like a marriage, like this is a covenant relationship, a friend of mine from seminary did um, her thesis, her master's thesis project on um, all the marriage language throughout the entire Old Testament, and I was stunned. I was shocked. Like, God talks marriage language throughout the whole Old Testament. 
He's wanting this covenant relationship. He wants to be their God. So um, the second commandment is like, um, it's really almost, it's essentially the same thing. It's like two sides of the same coin. That's why today we're putting these two commands together is that they just go together, they fit. Um, In verse four, it says, you shall not make for yourself um, a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above that is on the earth beneath or is that it is in the water under the earth. Um, so you can see um, that the instruction was to not to make a carved image, right? But I think it's important maybe to, to point out that God wasn't really telling them not to make a carved image. He was telling them not to make a carved image to worship, right? It's not that he's not you know, in favor of of arts and creating and crafting things because in just a few chapters later, he's going to endow them with the ability to um, make, uh, to fashion the the, um, Ark of the Covenant and all of the different um, elements that are going to go into the the tabernacle for worship, right? So he's going to tell them to carve stuff here in just a few chapters. But he's saying, don't carve something to worship it. And I think there are three points that um, are kind of important in that. First, he's saying, um, don't reduce me to a created thing. Like, don't reduce God to a created thing. And uh, the second thing is, is that did you, did you hear those same three categories repeated again that we had just read in Genesis chapter 1? Like, don't make a carved image of the things um, that of the fish of the sea, of the birds of the heavens, and the things that move along the earth. You see, when we do that, what we're doing is we are perverting God's good rule, his good plan. He has a plan for us. That plan is for us to be rulers over the creation. But when we um, choose to worship it, we are subverting that, and we are becoming the worshipers of the things, right? And I think another, the last thing that's so important to think about in that is the fact that God himself has already created something that bears his image. We can't create something that bears the image of God because God has already created something to bear his image. It's me and you. We were created to bear the image of God. Um, And so um, Dane Ortland talks about um, idolatry being um, idolatry is the folly of asking the, a gift to be a giver you know we often want to do that we, we want to create something that we can control the reason that we want it we may not actually you know in our day and time in life try to fashion something that we're going to bow down and worship but we do that in a thousand other ways we try to control God. We try to have something that we are in control of because we want to be in control. Um, but really, it's just folly. It's just folly to do that. Okay, so let's look at the uh, last two verses. In Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6, it says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but show 
steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So you may think it's kind of weird to hear God say that he's jealous. Like, how can that be a good thing for God to be a jealous God? But really, it's a wonderful thing. It's a huge blessing. You know, like if you're a parent, do you want your children to get messed up with meth? Like, do you want to see them get into drugs that's going to destroy their lives? What God is saying here, the reason that God is jealous is he's jealous for your good. He's jealous for your best. Um, and he is our best good. And so, yes, he is, um, he is jealous because he's, he loves us and he cares for us and he wants what is good for us. Um, and in his mercy, he doesn't let evil persist for forever. Isn't that amazing? Generational sin is a real thing. But God, in his great mercy, he doesn't let it last for forever. But his, his loving kindness, in comparison, lasts for thousands of generations. Um, in in that, that verse 6, when it says his steadfast love is to thousands, um, that, that word steadfast, describing God's love, is actually the Hebrew word hesed. And um, I wish that I, um, if you ever get the chance to listen to something online or a podcast um, by um, Dr. Allen from DTS on this word hesed, it's absolutely worth your time. You, sh you should listen to it. Um, I, I've, I've read a, like a number of um, scholars and uh, even Brit, I heard a few weeks ago talking about this, that um, if you want to understand uh, the whole intent of the Bible, you have to understand the word hesed. Like if you don't understand the word hesed, you will not interpret the entirety of the whole Bible. You will miss it. Like this is the, some, some writers will say, this is the single most important word in all of scripture. That's pretty loud, isn't it? This word hesed, it describes his love. It's most commonly translated as God's mercy. His love, his loving kindness, his steadfast love, his faithful love, his unfailing love. Like if you don't understand God's love, uh, you, you miss the whole point of the Bible. Um, Michael Card has written a book uh, about this word hesed, and in it he says, what sets the God of Israel apart, what made him completely unique to the point that the other gods were no gods at all, is what still sets him apart today. He is the God who delights in being kind, in loving his creation, and in offering forgiveness and salvation to those who have no right to expect anything from him. The great surprise of the Hebrew Bible is not that God is awesome or holy. These are characteristics that we would expect from God. The great surprise is that he is kind, that he is a God of Hesed. This is what fundamentally makes him unlike any other gods then or now. His Hesed love lasts for thousands of generations. He is our best good. So we began by saying that we can't live what we can't think. And so what are the commandments for? What are they to help us to do? If we can't live what we can't think, 
The commandments are meant to help us to have new thoughts, <laughs> to think new ways. Uh, the commandments are like rhythms of holy action. They're meant to reshape and to remake our mind. You know, if you start eating healthier food, somehow you start desiring healthier food. Sometimes you just have to, to act and then the motivation, the good thinking about it will follow behind it. Um, the commandments are also, another way you can think of them is they're like marriage vows. Um, the commandments, like God is making a covenant relationship with these people and he's saying, this is how I want you to act. These are, these are the vows that I want you to take. You know, um, Charlie's not here today. He's, I think he's got like two or three weddings to do this weekend. Um, he's got one today. And, um, you know, when a young couple stands and takes their vows, they have no idea. I mean, they've got no idea what they're committing themselves to, right? And the fact is, they can't do it. They cannot live up to those vows. But the thing about it is, is that, you know, when we just, when we fail and we, we get back up and we try again and we try again, those vows do change us to becoming a more loving person. Marriage vows define us and then they drive us. You know, there is a fundamental shift that happens when you take your marriage vows. When you go from single to married, like there is a fundamental shift, a change that happens. Um, and it does change you. It, it drives you to be a very different person, um, thankfully. You know, I've, I've never been a slave, and so I don't want to pretend that I really understand what was going on with the people of, of Israel. Like, I, I don't really get it. But I have been enslaved to wrong thinking and wrong behavior. And um, I've learned a couple of things about freedom. I learned <laughs> that I couldn't just want to stop my bad thinking. I couldn't just want it to go away. Um, I actually had to do a couple of things about it. And the thing that, that was so helpful, helpful for me was to get down underneath my anger and to figure out what it was that was causing it. Well, what is it that I'm really doing here when I'm just enjoying my anger? And you know what I discovered? Uh, it wasn't pretty. I discovered that really what was underneath there was pride. I wanted to feel better than. It was arrogance. It was self-pity. It was not pretty at all. And you know, the, the other thing that really helped, the other part of this equation <laughs> that really helped is not just the naming it, but I went to my trusted band of women in my small group, and I, with all the honesty that I could muster and with all that I knew how to say, week after week, I was saying what I was discovering. I was confessing it. I was being honest about what was going on in my life. And you know what happened? Like the next time I was trying to get all whipped up, I, I, I realized, oh, 
this is what I'm doing. You know, it, it just kind of lost all of its fun. It wasn't very entertaining anymore. It lost all of its power. And I want to, um, so if we can't live what we can't think, what we need are some new thoughts. And to be more precise, what we need is Jesus' thoughts. I'm going to summarize something that I heard John Mark Comer say in a sermon when he was talking about learning to take on the thoughts of Jesus. This is what he said. When we come to actually believe what Jesus himself believed about reality, about the good life, about the condition and meaning of life, about love, about happiness, when we transition from thinking merely about Jesus to thinking like Jesus... We're radically changed from the inside out, not just in our behavior, but in our subconscious core. In the words of Paul, we take on the mind of Christ. We're transformed by the renewing of our minds. But it's a very different thing from merely taking in information, facts, or truths. Obedience is acting on the truth, and it changes who we are. When we agree with Jesus, what we're doing is we're trusting him. We're trusting that his ways are right. And then when we trust that his ways are right, we want to obey him. And that's what really God is saying in this text that we're looking at today. He's saying, trust me. Trust me and obey me. Um, you know, sometimes we kind of get hung up on the idea of obeying. Um, sometimes it just feels like a... Um, you know, a, a four-letter word or something. I remember when I was teaching school one time, and I was supposed to be teaching this, um, like, after lunchtime, this moral ethics thing, and we were talking about obedience one day, and this kid looked at me, and she said, obedience is for dogs. I was kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> guess this one didn't, didn't work. But, but we don't. We are so resistant to obedience. We are. And, and sometimes we want obedience just to be simple. We want it to be black and white, and I think most of the times it's really pretty gray, actually. You know, if I'd have kept driving repeatedly towards just trying to stop my behavior, stop my thinking, I really would have never stopped and looked under the hood to see what was fueling my anger. I love what John Ortberg says about obedience. He says, obedience is far more creative, proactive, grace-powered, intelligent way of life than is normally thought in our day. Obedient, the obedience Jesus called for requires judgment, discernment, creativity, and initiative. It's about becoming an excellent person, not an excellent rule follower. In fact, an obsessive concern with following the rules will hinder your development into becoming the kind of person who does what Jesus says. You know, um, Obedience is creative. And I, I, didn't, I didn't really fully understand that. Like I just, I really, really, really wanted to just be able to, to will myself to stop. Just say, well, just don't do it anymore. And, and I couldn't do it. And you know, the other thing that was really important about that, this, this idea that we just talked about, about Hesed love, like if you name, if you actually start being honest with yourself and you start naming the things that are underneath our, our thinking, really what it does, it just 
if you're not just bathing in the love of God, it just brings shame. And shame is of no help towards freedom whatsoever. Shame never, ever is helpful. <laughs> but when we are just uh, really totally convinced that God loves me, that Hesed love that he has, um, it, it frees us up to really name the things in a way um, that makes just obedience possible. So what happens if we don't get it right? What happens if we just can't do it? Well, I bet in our story um, in Exodus, you probably know what's hap- going to happen in just a couple of chapters from here, right? They're going to make a golden calf and they're going to worship it, right? It takes them a whopping 12 chapters to break these two commandments. But do you know what God does in response to that? So. Moses has to go back up the mountain because God's got to write the commandments down again because Moses took the commandments, I mean, the tablets, and he threw them on the golden calf, right? And he broke them, and so he's got to go back up the mountain, and he's got to get new tablets. So what is it, how is it that God responds um, when this happens? You know what he does? He doubles down on his hesed love. He doubles down on it. And if you read in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, it says that the Lord passed before him, speaking of Moses, and he proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed love and faithfulness, keeping hesed love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and the transgressions and sins. You know, when you're deeply, deeply loved, obedience just seems like such a good option. It just seems like the right way to go. And you know, I I learned something about freedom, that freedom definitely comes on the other side of obedience. It definitely comes on the other side of obedience, but there's something else about freedom. Freedom comes loaded with joy. It comes loaded with joy. And you know, the thing about joy, it's like a thousand times. The high from joy is like a thousand times better than the high from anger could ever be. Obedience brings this joy into our life. Um, so in this, um, in this summer series that we're doing on the commandments, we have um, this, these three things that we're really wanting to understand. Like, if we obey the commandments, like, how does this affect my relationship with God? How does this, rela- how does this affect my relationship with other people? And, and how does it affect how I see the whole world? You know what I think? I think if we really could drink deeply that we should love God above all else, that he is our greatest good, that he's trustworthy, that he wants what's good for us, if we could take that in deeply, you know what it would do? Our relationship with God It would look something like, I would love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. And you know what it would do for my relationships with other people? Well, it'd make me want to love my neighbor as myself. And you know what it would do to the world around me? If we all lived like this, if we all believed this, we'd see heaven all around us we'd see heaven come to earth. We would see what Jesus prayed for. He taught us to pray 
that the Lord's will would be done on earth as it's done in heaven. And that's what we would see, the kingdom of God right here and right now. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much that you have loved us, that you have a good plan for us, that you desire um, this plan that you set in motion, and it's very good. It's very, very good. Lord, but we feel resistant in our soul to saying yes to your good way. We're so broken. Would you please double down on your Hesed love and convince us, convince us in our soul that you are our best good. Help us to love you with everything that we have. Change our hearts, our minds, change our relationships, and change our world, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. 